There's an outline. Hopefully that will be of some assistance to you. As Gav has said, we're talking about spiritual dryness this morning. So can I ask you, as you've come to church, are you on fire for Jesus? Can I hear an amen out the back? What if you're not? What if you're not on fire for Jesus this morning? What if you are feeling spiritually dry? What if the words of the psalmist when he says that his soul is downcast, what if those words resonate with how you're feeling right now? This morning, here at church, I want to talk about something that we don't often talk about, and yet I think it's something that many of us experience. I want to talk about spiritual dryness. I want to talk about the reality of it, that it isn't a reality. I want to talk about the causes of it, and perhaps some cures for it. So why don't you turn to Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is where we're going to be spending most of our time. It's fascinating there at the start of Psalm 42, there's this picture that the psalmist paints. Have a look there in verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul, so my soul pants for you, O God. I reckon deers aren't normally stupid and so they don't wait till they're dying of thirst to get a drink. But this deer, this deer is different because this deer is panting and the idea behind that is this deer is is dying of thirst and the deer perhaps has in its mind this place of revitalization it wants to go down to this place of cool and clear streams of water and the deer goes down expecting to find water and yet finds a dry riverbed And the psalmist is saying as he starts this psalm, I'm like that deer. I'm dying of thirst. And consequently and disturbingly for the psalmist, it feels as though God is like that dry river bed. Have a look there in verse 2. He says, "My my soul thirsts. For God. He doesn't say there, my soul is wonderfully satisfied by God. No, he says, my soul thirsts for God. He's got this unquenched reality that he's dealing with. And it's not as though I don't think that he doesn't believe in God. It's perhaps worse. It's that he can't sense God. God isn't apparent to him in this moment of thirst. There's a lostness about how he's feeling an empty ache. I wonder, have you ever felt like that as a Christian? I think one of the dangers of how we speak about being a Christian is that it is a great joy, and there is no doubt about that. But the reality of our Christian lives is that there are moments of significant hardship and trouble. And often, and sometimes in those times, we feel distant from God. And I think that's the reality for the psalmist. And it's helpful for, I think, us just to realise there is something in the Bible about how often, sorry, not necessarily how often, but there's something in the Bible about how we feel sometimes. I know this is not the case for all of us, and perhaps it's 
to do with our personalities, perhaps it's to do with our experience of life, but I think the reality is many of us do feel this way at certain times in our life. And here, I think for the psalmist, it's, it's the absence of the personal relationship with God that he's dealing with. Again, he says there in verse 2, when shall I come before God? The, literally, the word, well, the idea there is, when shall I see the face of God? He can't see the face of God. It's, it's as if God isn't smiling at him. And like I said, it doesn't mean that he doesn't believe in God. He's not experiencing God. There's not a taste of his presence or a feel of him being close. No sight or sound of God in his soul. You know, the thoughts that once comforted and strengthened him perhaps now sound a little empty. Cliches that echo, that ring hollow. He's lost the reality of God. He feels spiritually dry, spiritually numb to God. So why is that? How how did he get into this situation? Well, in in the Psalms, often this condition of feeling remote and distant from God is related to and directly related to the person's actions, their sinful actions, their feelings of guilt. We see that in Psalm 51 as David reflects on his sin with Bathsheba. We see it corporately in Psalm 137 as the nation of Israel lament their distance from God. There's often a connection in the Psalms between feeling distant from God and sin. But I don't think that's the case here in Psalm 42. I don't think the writer is, at least in his mind, directly attributing how he feels to what he's done. You know, it's, it's really tough to admit as a Christian that you are feeling dry. Don't you think that's hard? And often one of the reasons that it's hard to admit that you feel this way is that you're fearful of how people might respond. You're feeling spiritually dry and you tell someone and they say, What? You're feeling spiritually dry. Well, what you need to do is you need to read your Bible more. What you need to do is you need to pray more. What you need to do is you need to read this book because I read this book and I was feeling low and it's really spoken to me and you need to read this book because it helped me. And what you need to do is you need to find an accountability partner. Here, how we often respond to someone being honest, it's the classic Christian phenomena of being a rescuer. We want to help people. And not that any of those things are not just good and vital things and perhaps exactly what the person needs. But when someone says to you they're feeling like this, perhaps they know those things. And it might just be that in that moment, that person needs most from you, needs most from you just to say, you know what? I know how that feels. And I'm going to pray for you. You see, because often when we even come to grips with the reality of being spiritually dry, we feel like a freak. We feel like the exception to being a Christian. Like we're the only Christian who's ever felt this way, that's had to battle with this reality. 
And so I think it's it, the fact that the Bible speaks about this in, in lots of places, but not least of which in Psalm 42, I think it helps us acknowledge that this is just a reality that we don't need to freak out uh, over. In fact, the great, some of the great Christians have really been plagued with uh, what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones calls spiritual depression. One of the greatest preachers of all time, C.H. Spurgeon's battle with feeling spiritually dry and low. I think perhaps if we're a newer Christian, this issue can be quite frightening to us because you don't expect it to happen. You're a Christian and it's all about joy and it is wonderful and it's right and it's true and it's so encouraging. But if you start to feel like this as a young Christian, perhaps you feel that really Christianity isn't for you, that you start to doubt. And perhaps if you have been a Christian for a while... And you do enter a period of spiritual darkness, of spiritual dryness. I think one of the realities, this is certainly true for me, is that we don't treat it well. This is what we do. A. We ignore it. You know, I go to a good church. I know the truths about the gospel. There's no reason for me to feel spiritually dry. We ignore it. Secondly, what we do, and this is certainly the case for me, we hide from it. We pretend it's not there. We hide from it just by being really, really busy. And if we just do all this stuff for God, then we can feel better about ourselves and then we might feel closer to God. See, one of the wonderful things about being manically busy is that you don't have to stop and deal with these kinds of questions. It's great. See, we don't know how to deal with this reality. We don't know how to deal with it. And so you know what happens when you don't know how to deal with something? It gets worse. It doesn't get better. And in fact, I'm sure there are people that have been in this kind of condition of dryness for years, in this twilight zone, in this haze of disconnection. And there are some people I know who just never recover as Christians from being spiritually dry. Something that started as temporary has become a sustained settled pattern. So firstly, that's the reality of spiritual dryness. Secondly, what causes spiritual dryness? You see there in point two, the first one is absence from community. I think I've titled it differently in the outline, absence of community. Notice there in verse four, the psalmist says, these things I remember, I pour out my soul. Oh, how I used to go up with a multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among festive throng. We don't quite know what's happening for the writer of this psalm. It would appear as though he started as part of the southern kingdom where the temple is and he was part of this worshipping community going up to the temple, part of the feasting, involved in praise and joy in the collected people of God but now for some reason perhaps he was captured he's been relocated he's up in the northern part of Israel away from the temple away from his home of the worshipping community of God's people up there in the mountain range of Mount Hermon um, up in the north as its peak the point here is that He's distant. He, he's not just distant from God. 
He's actually also distant from the people of God. The people of God that once, notice that language, how I used to go. Have you, have you, have you heard or even caught yourself speaking in spiritually nostalgic terms? Oh, when I was in my 20s or when I was part of this. this I think this is the phenomenon. Okay, there's a spiritual nostalgia. That his best days of his Christian life behind him. How I used, I used to go, I used to go up. The point here is that there is a significant contribution that the people of God make to our spiritual lives. And I, I know you know that, but this is what, um, and it's great that Gav read from 1 John, this is what um, John's, we're seeing this in 1 John chapter 1, the reality of the fellowship of the people of God. Because here's the point, there's individual Bible study, there's reading the word by ourselves, that's a vital and good thing. But then there's a corporate study of the word of God. And they're not the same thing. There's individual prayer, us coming before God by ourselves. And then there's corporate prayer as the gathered people of God and they're not the same thing and you know what you need both we need both because there are things that you hear as the people of God are gathered that you would never say to yourself there are prayers that are prayed on your behalf that you would never pray for yourself you see this this man is disconnected from the people of God, the very people that sustained and grew his faith. And he's remembering fondly these pilgrim feasts, these times in which his soul was uplifted, but he's remembering them nostalgically, like they were in the past, the times of which the people of God came for, say, a feast like Passover. And when those in Israel gathered for a meal like Passover, how did they gather? They didn't gather like Australians have lunch at work, just at their desk by themselves. They gathered as families, first of all. And then as families, clans. And then as clans, tribes. And then as the tribes collected as a nation, it was a communal experience of God. It wasn't an individual. It was experienced as individuals, but in the context of the community of God, and they gathered to read the Bible. They gathered to recall how God had made them a people, how he had saved them, how he had brought them out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb, and they recommitted themselves to trusting him. Word and prayer, prayer and word. Together, together. See, one of our tendencies in modern Western culture is towards the individual. It's the unit of measurement for our society, the individual person. And so how this translates to the Christian world is people often say, you know, look, I can be a spiritual person without going to church. I don't need that institution. But how do we know? How do we know that we'll be all right by ourselves? How do we know that we can encourage ourselves. Uh, two or three times a year we hold a newish afternoon tea. I know many of you have been 
there for our newish afternoon teas. It's an afternoon tea to welcome new people into our church. And one of the questions I ask is, why, why would you join our church? And this is relevant not just for our church, but any church. And one of the reasons I give is, the reason you should join Point Church as your church is because you don't trust yourself in your Christian life. That you need a community of people around you to speak words that you wouldn't speak to yourself. To see things that you couldn't see for yourself. 1 John chapter 1 verse 3. Why is John writing? So that you might have fellowship with us. Now of course you're not going to fall away if you don't come to church one week. I'm not suggesting that. But by not coming to church, can I suggest that you don't even know the nourishment that you need absent from the people of God? let alone the encouragement that you might be to someone else, which is far more important. Secondly, cause of spiritual dryness is just the disillusionments of life. The writer is taunted by others. Have a look there in verse 3. They're asking these kinds of kind of disturbing questions. It's a mockery, really. Where is your God? The enemies ask this question. In the Psalms, enemies, there's a number of different types of enemies. Um, often in the Psalms, it's the enemies who are chasing David. They're, uh, they're hell-bent on killing him. Under the threat of death, they hunt him down. But this is not the case here for the enemies that the writer of the Psalm is facing. The enemies that the writer are, is facing here are those who are living right next to him. And the weapons that these enemies are using are not swords or spears. They're words, taunts, just so light to say but so heavy to receive. It's often those words that do get inside your head. You find yourself asking that question, where, you know, come on, where is God in my life now? And there in verse 9, these questions, these taunts are actually getting under his skin. In fact, worse than that, they're getting to his heart. He's saying there, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? I say to God, my rock, well, the one who used to be my rock, why have you forgotten me? Must I go about mourning, oppressed? By the enemy. I think the reality for this psalmist is that there is some crushing reality that has entered his life. It's more than just disappointment, I think. It's, it's a devastation that he is facing because you don't ask that question lightly. Where are you, my God? Where are you, my God, who once used to be my rock now you hide from me. You don't ask that question, I don't think, lightly. And you don't ask that question unless the events of your life don't fit with the idea of what you have, of how God should be at work in your life. How is, if he is loving and kind, why are you experiencing the reality of this misery? Is that not a question that we ask? You can hear the taunts 
of his enemies. Come on, if your God is so amazing, if he is for you, why is this happening to you? I think this is probably the most significant cause of spiritual dryness. It's, it's that reality of our lives and what we think our lives should be and who God is and how there's just a disconnection between those two realities. The third factor there is the physical de- depriv- deprivation. Have a look there in verse 3. He's not eating. He's not sleeping. See, what the Bible appreciates here is that there is a physical aspect to his dryness. In fact, there's a physical aspect to the Christian life. Um, We've just started a new course and it's helping people understand for the first time, for many, what Christianity is. And one of the things that we do is we look at the impact of Christianity on our world and we look at it in five ways as the course starts. And one of the ways that Christianity has reshaped our world is the way we think about our bodies. In the ancient world, the body was not something that was seen as positive. In fact, the body was seen as something very negative and there could be no connection between the spiritual aspects and the bodily aspects. But when Christianity came into the world, it it said something very different from the ancient world. It said, no, the body is really important. It's something that God has created, and when God creates something, he creates it as good. And so Christianity gave our world the value of the body. This is the case that a man called Peter Brown makes. But what we've seen in our modern, secular world is all the good things that God has affirmed, as we've detached ourselves from a Christian way of thinking, we've distorted what God has given. The ancient world undervalued the body. The Christian world and the Christian worldview started to value it. But the secular world has perverted that and it's made the body into an absolute. It's where it's only the body that's important. It's only what you can see that's important. Do you see the progression? But Christianity values. Christianity gives us a a holistic understanding of the world. Christianity took the body seriously in the ancient world in a way that it wasn't taken seriously before. The Bible understands us as whole beings, that we have a social aspect, so we need friends, that we have a physical aspects, and so we need rest. We have emotional aspects, and so we need encouragement and love. We have spiritual aspects, and so we need truth. There is a physical reality to our spiritual lives. I I was feeling, uh, I think, spiritually dry uh, earlier in the year, in January, and I think, as I've reflected on it, I think I was just physically exhausted. That was one of the most significant contributions to how I was feeling. I just needed to rest. And here's, I think, something the Bible really appreciates. It, It really understands how we work as humans. Lastly, for cures for spiritual dryness. Firstly, to, pro- to process before God. Have a look at there at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. As I pour out... He's, he's remembering these things. You know what I do? I, I forget these things. I suppress them. But here what the psalmist is doing, he's remembering these things and he's bringing them before God. He's processing how he feels before God. He's not ignoring his emotions. He's bringing them before 
God and he says, he says, I don't even feel God. And yet, you know, that's the remarkable thing about this psalm. It, you know, in some sense it is a pretty depressing psalm. Someone pointed out to me earlier this morning. But in other sense, it, it, it's wonderful because he brings how he feels before God. You can do that. You can bring how you feel, even if you feel as though God is distant from you. Here in this psalm, we have a model of bringing how you feel before God. I think that's, that is wonderful news. And in fact, this is what modern psychology, one of its contributions is that um, healthy people, uh, emotionally healthy people, don't ignore their emotions. They notice them. They process them. Even one term that they use now is they metabolise them, whatever that means. But they, they don't ignore them. They think about them. And here we have this ancient model of not ignoring how you feel, even your disappointment with God, but bringing it before him. You know, even if you get nothing out of church, don't miss it. Even if you get nothing out of community group, even if you get nothing out of a time of prayer, don't stop. Well, you say, well, you know, why would you say that? It's not doing anything good for me. Yeah, fine. So talk to God about it. Don't stop it. Talk to God about it. Don't ignore how you feel about the gifts that God has given. Bring them before God. An old Christian man I was talking to this week uh, was reflecting on the way he sees so many bitter Christians because, in fact, they haven't dealt with the disappointments. They've just kind of run over them. They've been so busy or they've thought, oh, because I'm a Christian, that's all in the past. That's fine. I don't need to deal with that. But when we don't deal with the realities of our life, one of the dangers is that we become bitter in our disappointment. Secondly, what the psalmist does as he responds to this dryness is that he, there in verses 5 and 11, if you have a look, he keeps asking this question, why are you cast down on my soul? Now, now when we ask questions, most of the time we're looking for information. How do I get to... We used to live on Bray's Road. The number of times I'd be at the front putting the bin out, people would stop and say, how do I get to the hospital? How do I get to the ferry? They want information. This is not why the psalmist is asking the question. He's not looking for data. He's reflecting. He's reflecting on himself and his life. And you know what? He doesn't need new information. He knows who God is. And he's thinking about his life. And you know what he's doing? He's putting those pieces together. He's putting those pieces together. And he's asking himself, why am I like this? He's doing some self-reflection, self-examination. He's looking for his hopes. He's looking for his baseline beliefs. Because this is one of the realities of the Christian life, is that we hide from what we truly believe. Like we know it, we know it up here. It's not as though we've forgotten it. But in our hearts, we hide from those baseline realities. Why am I so cast down? You know why we're often so cast down? Because spiritual dryness reveals false hopes. Spiritual dryness often reveals and brings before us a warning that we've been hoping in the wrong things. And here this psalmist is relocating 
his hope from, from one thing to, to God. And he's not beating himself up. He's not saying, I just need to do more and more of this. No, he's just wanting to re-see and reimagine those wonderful things that he once knew. He's examining his hope. Thirdly, he's scooping up mouthfuls of grace. Because the grace of God is pretty much what we need no matter where we are. The reality of the loving kindness of God is what he's calling to mind. He's deliberately thinking, not just about God in a general way. Yes, I know God is out there. He's big and he's loving. That's great. I'm going to get on with my life. Now look at verse 8. Look what he's doing. He's saying, day by day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He's not thinking about God in an abstract kind of way. He's thinking about God in a personal way, that his love is for him in that moment of time. He's thinking about the history of what God has done in redeeming his people and he's turning that into a song, a song that he sings to himself even at night. And fourthly, lastly, he's rubbing, this is perhaps most importantly, he's rubbing the reality of who God is into and pressing it into his heart. I cooked a barbecue last night and it was a beautiful piece of pork fillet. I made a rub up. And I didn't just flick the rub at the pork fillet. That was a beautiful piece of meat. I rubbed it. I massaged that rub into every little crevice of that piece of pork fillet. And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. See, the key to dealing with our spiritual lives is to listen to our heart, not to ignore our emotions. It's to pull them out. It's to examine our hope. It's to remember the grace of God. But at one point, there comes a point in our lives where we've got to stop listening to our heart and start talking to our heart, start speaking the realities of God's word into our heart because you can wake up in the morning and you can be feeling terrible terrible but at some point you've got to stop listening simply to your heart and say to your heart is there a deeper reality at work in your life than how you're feeling right now and even if and even if you can't feel it now doesn't mean that God's love for you isn't true does it mean that he has not given himself wholly for you? See, our feelings are important. They're signals that we need to take notice of. But they are not the determiner of reality. What determines, God's, what, what determines reality? The way our world was made, his word. His word creates reality, not our feelings. And so we need to let the truth of his word speak to the reality of how we feel. And this is what the psalmist is doing. He's rubbing those truths deep into his heart. He needs them. He can't feel them, but that doesn't matter. He can start to feel them as he rubs them into his heart. This psalm, in one sense, is not depressing. It's wonderfully realistic about life. It's wonderfully realistic because here in this psalm, there's a, there's a progression. It starts in misery and despair, but it ends in hope there in verse 11. And this is great news for us. You see, do you think that God has given up on you? 
Do you think that you're a failure, that you're a hopeless Christian? Well, that's not the case. That's not the case for you. That's not the case for this writer. But why is that not the case for you? I mean, there's, yeah, sure, Stu, that's nice. Nice for this writer that he can go on this lovely progression. But what about me? What about my life? How do you know this isn't for you? How do you know? Well, you've got to listen to the one who really did thirst. You've got to listen to the one whose enemies did taunt him. You've got to listen to the one whose enemies said, where is your God? Why don't you get down and save yourself? See what we have that the psalmist didn't have? We've got the reality of the gospel, of Jesus' love for us. See, Jesus didn't just experience the loss of the feeling of God's presence. On the cross, he actually lost God's presence. Why? So we can say, despite our feelings, we can say that God proclaims to us this morning, he's irrevocable, he's irresistible, he's irreversible, he's indestructible love for us, that he'll never give up on us. And so we can put our hope in him. And again and again, we can praise him. Amen.